Welcome to Founder Views. My name is Costa. I'm your host and co-founder of Web for Realty, a SaaS company that I bootstrapped out of my parents' basement with no money and no tech experience into a fully remote company doing seven figures in ARR. I'm taking you through my SaaS journey in real time as I talk about business situations I'm going through, thinking about, or just find interesting. My purpose is not to give you the answers, but to spark something in your mind that can help improve your business along the way. I manage a remote company, so we hire team members from all over the world. One of the most tedious things about hiring and growing a team is the HR administrative part of it all. As my company was starting to grow and we were starting to hire more and more team members, I knew I needed a solution that would help organize my employees and company better. That's when I discovered Humi. The value that Humi provides begins the moment you think about hiring. With Humi's recruitment portal, I'm able to publish my job post, sync it to all the other popular job sites, and feed all the applicants directly into Humi. When you're getting hundreds of applicants and interviewing dozens of people per day, you need a system that will help organize your hiring process so you can simply focus on finding the best person for your company. After you find the right person to hire, you have to onboard them into your company properly. That requires creating contracts, company materials, sending it to the new hire to review and getting them to send it back to you, among many other things. With Humi, I have all of my contracts and documents preloaded and they are dynamically filled with the new hire's information. So there's no more manual work and back and forth involved. All documents are signed online through Humi and tracked accordingly. That part alone saves me at least two to three hours per employee during the onboarding process. But probably one of my favorite features of Humi is their time off feature. Now I'm able to create my own company time off policies. All of my employees can request time off directly through Humi and I can either approve it or deny it on the spot. I'm able to easily track how many days off an employee has taken in the year and the entire team is able to see a live calendar of who's scheduled to be away. So if you're a company owner, you have employees, or you're thinking about growing a team, I would highly, highly recommend checking out Humi. That's H-U-M-I. They have it all. HR, payroll, benefits. Uh, I have an exclusive promo only for my listeners. I got you 30% off your subscription. Uh, Make sure you sign up at humi.ca slash founderviews so they know that I sent you and you get you 30% off. That's humi.ca slash founderviews to get 30% off. Trust me, you won't regret it. I'm speaking with Colin Nettercorn, the CEO and co-founder of Customer.io. Colin was an absolute pleasure to speak with, just a terrific individual. He built Customer.io in 2012 with his co-founder, John. For those who don't know, Customer.io is a SaaS company that gives companies one place to manage all of their emails, push notifications, SMSs, and other messages that come from their product to their customers. My company uses it internally, definitely one of my favorite apps, but Customer.io is now doing over $10 million in annual recurring revenue. They're fully remote, have a team of over 50 employees, and are absolutely crushing it. We're talking about how Customer.io maintains a positive company culture, even though they're remote and distributed. We talk about marketing and what's driving their consistent and steady growth. Uh, We also talk about some development and how their product team is made up, which is very, very insightful. Uh, I had such a great time speaking with Colin so much that we lost track of time actually. So we had to cut it a bit short at the end, but nonetheless, here's my chat with Colin. 
All right, Colin, thank you so much for joining me on the Founder Views podcast. I'm uh, really excited. Hey, Costa, great to be here. Awesome. So, so like I said, I was really excited to have you on the podcast. You know, my company, Web Realty, has been a, a long time happy customer of Customer IO, and yeah, uh, that's I've been amazing. A, yeah, I've been a huge fan of your content and just you know your transparency over the years, which, which has been really helpful to me. I'm sure to countless others as well. Um, but before we get into it, do you mind telling those who may not know you just a little bit about yourself and what you're up to today? Yeah, yeah. So um, my name is Colin Netterkorn. I'm the CEO of Customer.io. Um, so I'll talk about the company first. Customer.io um, is a SaaS product that gives businesses one, places, one place to manage all of their emails, push notifications, and SMSs and other messages that come from their product to their customers. Um, so I personally, I, I was born in Singapore, lived there for 16 years, moved to the UK for a little bit. And then I've been in, in the U.S. since college. Um, I'm originally half American, half like English and Dutch. And uh, yes, yeah, so I've been, been in the U.S. for uh, more than half my life now. I think I'm like 36 or 37. I don't know how old I am. I, I stopped counting. Yeah, I, I lose track. <laughs> After 30s, you, you, you have to think about it. <laughs> yeah, and um, we started the company in New York. Uh, my co-founder, John, and I started the company in New York and then decided to go remote, build a, build a remote company, hire people all over the world. And in 2014, started in 2012 and 2014, I moved our headquarters to Portland, Oregon. Um, and I've been living here since 2014. Okay. That's awesome. So you guys were launched in 2012. Yep. Um, yeah, it was just the two of us when, when we started, uh, launched the company in 2012, took a little bit of funding, uh, cause we realized that to do what we wanted to do, we, we, the two of us had bitten off more than we could chew. And, um, I can kind of get, get into the nitty gritty of like why it made sense to us to take some money early on. Um, I know, I know you're, you're pretty, pretty into bootstrapping. And I, I think like the, the ideals and ideology of bootstrapping has always like resonated with me, but it it wouldn't have been possible for us to build customer IO with the money that we had um, in our pockets, which was like, uh, negative after like a month or two of doing the company. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, so we, so we took a little bit of money and, and haven't raised that much to, to grow the company to where we are today. I mean, yeah, like my company is bootstrapped. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I don't think there's a right or wrong way to grow a company. I think if you feel you need more funds and resources to take your business to the next level, uh, but not over rely on financing, then yeah, it could be a good mechanism if used properly yeah. for sure. Um, I do want to unpack all that as well, but, um, before I do so, um, I know you just got back from paternity leave, right? Yeah. Yeah. It took uh, like six weeks and, six, okay. uh, yeah, it was, it was off for six weeks. Awesome. So first of all, just congratulations. So amazing. Um, curious to hear from you, like how important is just decompressing and just unplugging from the daily hustle and grind? I know you took six weeks off. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Um, it was, it was harder to be off on paternity leave than it, than it is to be back at work. Uh, 
But so I, I don't know. I mean, for me, there wasn't a lot of decompression. I had all these, you know, it, it was my second kid. So I, I had done this once already. Um, and I only took two weeks last time. Uh, but it was important to me to set an example for the rest of the company that it's okay to take your parental leave when, uh, when you have a kid. And, and so I wanted to take the, the six weeks but unfortunately, like all of my aspirations for like, I'm going to write a lot. I'm going to get all these home projects done. Uh, none of that, none of that really happened. We got family got sick and I spent a bunch of time like trying either helping other people who were sick or being sick myself. And, um, yeah, forget decompressing. I need, I need a vacation. That's true. <laughs> That's totally true. Two small kids. Like, how can you really decompress? Let's be real. Um, but, but speaking about the company, so that, that's, um, you know, I see you really built this very unique, like, you know, very cool culture around customer IO, uh, you know, on top of that, just being a remote company. Um, I think company culture is obviously one of those things that everyone just talks about and uh, tries to build, but it's very difficult. Now, I don't know if it's just optics, but you know, customer IO, it seems like you guys make it look very easy and seamless. Um, so how, how do you build and maintain such a, a positive culture in the company? I think, um, so when, when John and I started the company, we wanted to build a company that we wanted to work for. And, um, so some of that kind of bubbled into how we designed the type of business we were going to build. So who, who were our customers going to be? It was really important to me to build a product for our peers rather than people I didn't know, or I didn't feel like I knew or a consumer product. Um, I, I wanted to build something for our peers. I wanted to build something that was like close to revenue or sorry, I say I, but really we, we wanted to build something that was like close to um, a business's revenue. So it was valuable to them and they would, they would be willing to pay for it. And so we, we really designed this company. I think that the big thing we underestimated was, was being uh, part of their infrastructure and having a 24 seven, 365 day a, a year expectation that we're up and running. And also the nature of our product is that um, we, we're looking for the, in, in many times people set up campaigns in customer IO that get sent to uh, where, where an email or a push notification gets sent to someone when something doesn't happen. And if you're a product that's looking for things that don't happen, you have to make sure that you always know what has happened. And that's part of that, like, 100% uptime requirement. So that, that's something we totally underestimated. Um, but other than that, like a lot of what we built into the company is, is the type of place that we wanted to work. And there are things like focusing on someone's output rather than FaceTime. Like I, there's nothing I hate more than um, having to be visible in the office from you know, nine to five or whatever, whatever the time is. It just seems like silly to me, uh, especially the, the optics of convincing your boss that you're the, you're the hardest worker because you're there all the time. And so, so there are things like that. We wanted to design our company culture. We wanted to design things like that out of our company culture and remote was, was part of that as well. Why should, 
why should a good and interesting job be tied to a physical geography? You know, we, we wanted to build a company that had interesting technology problems um, and certainly like scaling a, uh, a service that deals with real-time data from really big, from businesses that are way bigger than ours um, is, is a pretty hairy technical problem. And so that, that keeps things interesting um, at the company. But, but a lot of times those really interesting technical problems are concentrated in tech hubs. And you know, why shouldn't a remote company be able to offer really interesting technical problems to um, talented developers who just don't happen to be in a San Francisco or a New York where we started? And so you know, th those are just a couple examples of the decisions that we made, which I think um, affected the company that we built and the culture, the culture of the company that we built as well. Yeah, I love it. You know, I couldn't agree more. You know, output rather than FaceTime. Uh, so true. So now, with that being said, like as a remote company where, you know, being disconnected uh, can become easy, like how do you maintain the engagement and like the rapport building in a growing team? Like, you know, for example, do you guys have any daily routines that you do, like daily stand-ups or Zoom meetings, for, for instance? I think, yeah, so so async is or asynchronous communication is really important, especially when you get distributed. Uh, and we have people, I think our the the first person who wakes up in the morning is in New Zealand, and uh, we the last person who goes to sleep at night is on on the US West Coast. So so I think by the time that the US West Coast is going to sleep, New Zealand is already up up the next day. Um, so we're, we're really spread geographically. And so it makes it hard to have uh, daily synchronous routines. And certainly some of the teams have, um, they, they share information with each other, you know, on, on a daily cadence and uh, teams that are working closely together on a project when, when their time zones overlap, they, they do have face-to-face uh, -face meetings on, on Zoom. And as a company, we try to get together in person twice a year, and then teams within the company also get together in person. So there's a lot of there's a lot of travel that comes um, comes with working here because we we know the value of those face to face meetings. Um, and then you know we we have a uh, we we have Slack. People talk on Slack. Slack is great for jokes and leaving, you know, funny, funny animated GIFs and um, articles that are interesting. And people use it to like say hi and bye to each other. Uh, but yeah, it's it, Slack is not not my favorite tool in our in our toolbox. <laughs> so that's interesting. So you don't you don't use Slack for anything other than just like you know the jokes and the hi and byes. No, pe people do use it to coordinate and and pass information. My um, and and we're probably not as good at this as and and I'm I'm not setting uh, the greatest example here, but like ideally, there's no decisions being made that are documented in Slack. Decisions should be documented elsewhere, um, and Slack is really about coordination and um, sharing links to where decisions are, rather than 
the the system of record for our business because it's just impossible to um, to find things later and the you, you're required to like read through this whole long conversation to understand um, where a few people uh, what, what decision a few people came to when for posterity it's much better to like put that decision and a summary of it somewhere else like if you're working on a project together make sure you document that um, what, what decision you guys made in the place that you're organizing all your project material probably your you know your wiki or something like that yeah, I know. It makes total sense for sure. So you guys do two annual retreats a year? Two annual retreats. The The team nice. was just in, in Budapest and okay. I was, I was on paternity leave during that. Um, so that was the first time that everyone got together without me. Uh, and it was, it was pretty exciting. Like it was excited. I was excited to see how well it went without me being there. That's amazing. That's amazing. What do you usually do it in the same months or? Yeah, there's, there's a spring and a fall retreat. So our okay. spring retreat is going to be in, uh, in Vermont this, this time. And usually it's like one inside the U S and one outside the U S. So, um, yeah, it was in, in Budapest and then in, in the spring it's in Vermont. I love it. That's awesome. Uh, do you still do the hiring at your company? I am not really involved in, in hiring anymore. Uh, I used to be like one of the last people someone would, would speak with, but, uh, for the past, I don't know, maybe 10, 10 or so hires, I, I haven't been involved. Okay. Okay. How, how big is the team now? We're, I think like 55 or 56 people, something like okay. that. Okay. Nice. So nice. not, not super big, but not small. Okay, for sure. The reason I asked about hiring, you know, I, I'd imagine hiring is something your company in general takes very seriously just in order to, you know, maintain that, that culture and that positivity that you guys have built. Um, you know, and I know it's something I take very seriously also as a remote company. So I'm wondering if you can share any tips or advice when it comes to hiring remotely, like, you know, does your team have any best hiring practices or types of people you're looking for? Yeah. I mean, I think we, so, and, and this has changed. I think that when you're, when you're building a remote team, the type of person that you're, you're looking for and that your team can really support depends on the size of your team. So pretty, pretty early on. And maybe when we were in our, our twenties, as far as team size, you really only have like one or two people in a given role. And so to, if, if your goal is to, is to do that role really well with low supervision, which, um, is pretty important in, in a distributed team that like people can be, um, quite self-sufficient, then you, you, you want to hire people who are experienced in, in that role. So you tend to like optimize for experience. Um, and the, the kind of ideal person has remote working experience and the specific job function experience. Uh, we found that when we compromise on like both no remote experience and no specific job experience, that's when we typically have worse, worse outcomes um, for hiring than if people have at least one, but um, I hopefully both. And, you know, I, I think at this point in time, there's a, not a lot of people who have 
remote experience. So finding someone who is like really good at, at what they're doing or what you're asking them to do. Um, and then hiring them on and letting them, letting them learn how to, how to work remotely, um, has worked really well for us. And more recently we, especially as we've got like three or four or five people in a given role, we hire, um, you know, we're, we're more equipped to hire people who have lots of raw potential and we now have the people in place to mentor them and support them in, in growing in a role. And that's, that's been really amazing to see. Yeah. I love it. And that, that's, that's awesome. Uh, but you're right. I mean, you know, working remote's tough. Like, I think it gets to this misconception. Like, I don't know about you, but when we hire, um, you know, we have a lot of people applying just cause it's remote. And I think a lot of people have this, this fairy tale image of what remote work is like, you know, working from a beach or like, coffee shops every day and like rainbows and but uh, it's really not the case it requires a certain type of individual with like a lot of self-discipline and motivation yes. and so yeah it's um it's interesting yeah and our our i think that um one of our big problems is getting people to stop working when when there's this true yeah. place that you go to and there's and you see everyone leaving at five o'clock every day that's your, that's your cue that it's time to stop working in, in our company, you know, two hours before I'm wrapping up my day, people are starting their day. So while, while there are quiet, quiet periods, there's never a time when there's just nobody around and nobody working. Um, and so there's, there aren't those cues that, Hey, it's, it's time for you to stop. Um, and so, you know, the, the type of person who is like, really self self-motivated wants to is like you know gets gets really deep into whatever project they're working on and wants to make that successful and wants to achieve that goal or or um create that thing the problem is stopping more so than making sure that people are at their keyboard tapping tap tap tapping away uh from nine to five <laughs> Yeah, no, that that's very true for sure. Um, so switching gears a little bit, I have a, a curious question. You know, for as someone who uses your product quite a bit, um, you know, it's it's very featureful and dense product in a good way, like super easy to use. Like I'm not technical, but like I'm in there every day. Um, and you know, there's there's constant updates and improvements regularly, which is amazing. Uh, but but for the product folks out there that are listening, uh, do you have any tips on sort of the, the development cycle of your product in terms of how you release new features and when and, and sort of how to prevent things from breaking. Um, anything you can share in that regard without getting too specific or granular on it? Yeah, and we really struggled in um, probably a few years ago. We, we struggled with our pace of development. We were underwater on, um, on infrastructure stuff. So our, our the stability of our application wasn't wasn't great, and we were just we were really struggling to ship new features. And we experimented with with process as a solution. We experimented with um, we ended up like having a lot of product managers kind of come come in and leave the company during that time. And um, about it must be about two years ago, we hired our now VP of product uh, Brian who built our product team. And the product team today is 
three product managers and three designers. Um, and the way we, we organize is we typically have a um, squads. We, we use something similar to Spotify squad model. And we have a front-end developer, a back-end developer, a product manager, and a designer on, on a squad. And they have a business problem that they're trying to solve for. So one, one of the squads that we have today is, is working on um, improving our self-service experience. So reducing, reducing the amount of human interaction that um, new signups are, are sort of really required to have to, to get going in the product. So they're working on um, identifying things that help us improve that self-service experience. And that's, that's, really, that's really helped, I think, having... Having experienced talented people has helped. What, what didn't help was trying to find new and better ways to document, uh, like, or uh, to, to come up with like plans and documentation. I think, I think the people trump process almost all of the time, and just having having great people in place, uh, as well as like solving some of our infrastructure challenges, helped us really accelerate our our pace. And over the past six to twelve months, if if you were a, if you've been a customer for a really long time, there was a while where we weren't shipping anything, uh, or and our the things that we were shipping were really small. And over the past six to twelve months, we've been doing pretty significant improvements and updates to the product on a on a very regular basis. Uh, and so it's been super exciting for me to see that. And that's that's full credit to. Brian and the, the team that he's built and, um, and the engineering team really being, uh, being able to produce that work very quickly. Yeah, no, that, that's great. And I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate the, the transparency and sort of breaking down how you guys are, are set up from, from that end. Um, you know, I think it's important for, for people to realize like, you know, a company, even like a company, like even customer IO who, who's so successful in a lot of different ways. Um, but under the hood, you know, there's always problems and issues. And you said up until two years ago, you know, you had a lot of, you're underwater with infrastructure stuff. And it wasn't until recently where you, you really solidified that. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, one thing I read on your blog recently uh, it's the concept of disagree and commit, uh, you know, and, uh, although you, you try and bring on as many like-minded people in your company who share, you know, similar values and stuff, uh, you're always going to have disagreements and different viewpoints, which I think is very healthy. Uh, but to continue moving the needle, you have to have that disagree and commit, uh, like you wrote, wrote about. And I totally agree with that. It's something I do very often as well. Uh, do you mind sort of elaborating on that concept a bit and, and how you apply it in your company? Have you ever lost a potential customer because you weren't connected to that one random platform? It's definitely happened to me. I recently came across a company called Data Automation. These folks are a must-have partner for a SaaS company. Instead of saying no and losing that potential customer due to a missing integration, you should reach out to the team at Data Automation. They're absolute whizzes in integrations and automations. They're Zapier certified app developers and very, very reasonably priced as well. Uh, check them out at dataautomation.com. That's dataautomation.com. Tell them Costa from Founderview sent you and they'll definitely take care of you.
Yeah. So the, the concept is, uh, I don't, I, I think it was maybe recently popularized by, um, by Jeff Bezos and it's one of Amazon's principles. Um, the Amazon principles are pretty, pretty cool. Uh, if you, if you Google that, you should be able to find them. Um, so the, the main idea, or, or at least the reason that this thing, that this idea is, uh, really important to me is I, I realized that, um, especially as the company grew, my understanding and visibility into everything that's happening into the, into the company was diminished. There were other people who had a much better idea of, um, how to be successful in a particular area or what, what customers think about a particular feature and how it should work. Um, and it became really apparent to me that I, I could either try to cling on to the ideas in my head and my understanding and say, I'm right, do it my way and try to sort of like fight until either I give up or they give up and, and, or I can embrace the fact that I no longer, um, and, and this is something that I hope, I hope to never be the smartest person in the room, but like, I know, I no longer have the insight that can help us do this the right way. And I have to trust that other people, um, other people's guts and other people's, uh, reasoning about something is better than mine, even if it feels wrong to me. And so that's what, um, that, that to me is what disagree and commit is all about. And, uh, trying to think of, of recent, recent examples here. The, yeah, I guess I, I mentioned, I, I mentioned, uh, and I won't, I won't get into super specifics here, but I mentioned we were working on our onboarding experience for self-service customers. And there was, and I was reviewing the, some of the proposed work and the, the approach that was taken or, or the constraints put on the first iteration of this work, I, it, in my head, I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure about these constraints, but I realized that I, I wasn't, I hadn't been super involved in, in the process and the decision-making up to that point. And so I kind of bit my tongue and I said, okay, um, let's kind of, let's look at the work for, for what it is and not question the underlying constraints that the product manager was given in order to, to go in and, and do the work. And so that's a pretty small example, but the, the alternative there was I could have said, Hey, your underlying assumptions are wrong. Let's spend 30 minutes talking about those rather than actually review. And maybe I can give you some feedback on, um, on the work that was actually done. Yeah, I love it. No, that that's that's great. I, I again, I just think that's so important just to keep things flowing and keep things moving rather than just getting, you know, stuck in the mud, which which happens a lot. Yeah, I think I actually read an a few articles many years ago about really bad CEOs who get too deep into the weeds in the product, and my background was as a product manager, so I was like really scared that I would be that CEO. I think I overcorrected a little bit, um, but then I, I arrived at this place where I can insert my opinion, but I also don't, I don't need to be right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Makes total sense. Um, all right. So I want to switch gears again. I got to admit this is the part I was most excited and curious about. Uh, I want to talk about some marketing and growth. So sure. 
you know, customer IO seems to be growing like a rocket ship. You know, I saw a tweet you posted, I think a week last week or two weeks ago, you're doing 10 million in annual recurring revenue. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're over 10 million a year in, in ARR. Um, it's, it's been a long time coming. I mean, I think not one of the amazing things with, with SaaS is if you can continue to grow month over month, you'll be a big company at some point. And I would describe us more as, as like, we're, we're a like consistent and steady grower as a company rather than a rocket ship. I think there is, there is an exponential growth curve in there, but, but it's not a, we're, we're not going straight up at this point in time. Um, and look, as the numbers get bigger, it's harder, it's harder to maintain that growth. Uh, but definitely possible if you, if you keep at it and identify all of the friction points and, and try to remove them. Yeah, for, I, I can only imagine. But nonetheless, that's massive. Congratulations on that. That's Thanks. huge. Um, but let's take it back to the beginning. So, you know, you launched in 2012, like you said. Like, how, how did you go about getting your earliest customers and just gaining that initial traction? Well, when, when we launched, um, we, were, we were really fortunate in that they're in the, in the like startup conversation, there were a bunch of people talking about uh, I think I think the term was like onboarding as a service or something like that. Basically, using using triggered messages to help onboard and get new trials up and running. And so there was some conversation about that. And every every time I saw someone talking about what we were building, I would reach out to them and I would say, "Hey, um, I don't have anything to sell you, but this is a problem that we're really excited to be working on, and I would love to learn from you and understand, you know." what you want out of a solution. And um, fortunately, like people, people were really receptive to that. I think when you're not selling anything, people are more willing to talk to you. Um, and so we, we built, we built an audience. We started writing about the, what we were building as well and um, gathered interest on a landing page, which is pretty, a pretty standard tactic. I think what, what we, weren't doing initially, but, but we did start doing after a few months is we were gathering interest in emails, but we weren't emailing the people we thought, Oh, and in six months or a year, when we launch our product, we'll just send out our big launch email and all these, all these emails that we've gathered will convert and they'll all become our customers and it'll be great. And, um, uh, this guy, Ramit Sethi, I met with him uh, I was introduced to him by, by a friend and uh, met with him and we were talking about that. And he's like, wait, you're collecting these email addresses and you're not emailing them. That's, that's a really bad idea. You should be building a relationship with people. Um, and so that's really that, that insight is a, what, what turned me sort of from a product manager into someone who got really interested in, marketing and copywriting and how to, um, how to do like conversion optimization and all, all these other, all these other disciplines that were more closely aligned with what the people using our product, um, would be interested in. I started writing about that and talking to our audience about that. And we, at that point, we, we were just, you know, we were really transparent with people about the, the progress of our, our product and our company. And in the early days, we, we built our brand and, and kind of reputation um, 
and that was that was a really exciting exciting time. It got us to a point. It didn't it didn't sort of scale forever, and I got burned out on on me being responsible for content marketing. Um, but uh, but that's really what got what got momentum going for us. That's interesting. I'm I'm curious. Do you think the way you built the relationships back then is still feasible today? Like just with all the the noise and just constant stream of information people are bombarded with now compared to, you know, seven years ago, which I think was, was very different. Yeah, it, it was, it was a really different time. There weren't a lot of people uh, doing content marketing to the same level that, that people are doing it today. But, but I think like f- the, the fundamental stuff is, t- is still possible today. Um, you know, I think that like, we we couldn't start our business today in the same way that we did seven years ago, but I think if if a new if someone came in and they wanted to build a business, the the core things that we were doing then are still relevant. It's identifying your audience and um, you know who your potential audience and customers are, and what they care about, and helping to to educate them, helping you know even if you're not selling them a product yet building that relationship with them so that um, they trust you and they tell other people they trust you. Um, that, that make, that goes such a long way um, to, to sort of convincing people that they should bet on your business. And so I, th- I think that's still valid. I don't know if the right approach is send people messages on Twitter, like, uh, like we were doing. I think that still probably works though, but you, you just have to come across as, not too smarmy and, and (laughs) like the kind of person that, that they want to interact with. And and you've got to be bringing them value in every interaction that, that you have with them. I think give more than you ask for. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree with that for sure. I definitely think the framework is still there. I think, uh, as you said, I think the words matter and the way you communicate now is, is, is maybe a little bit more challenging than it was, you know, seven years ago, but yeah. Um, so what about today? Like, where is this continued steady stream of growth coming from? Is it still like content marketing side of things? Yeah. So, so the, we've scaled back our content marketing quite a bit and, and haven't done much recently. Um, we will probably experiment a little more with that, maybe with different mediums than, than writing. Uh, I'm sort of interested to explore other forms of content marketing I think it would be fun for, for one. And I'm kind of, I'm always curious to learn, learn more things. Um, the, I think more, more recently, one of the investments that we've made is in a partner's program early on. We, we felt like partnerships were a really big distraction. Um, the, the other one aspect of partnerships that can be really distracting early on is you kind of need to look at the, the power dynamic in, in any partner relationship if you're a tiny company and you want, you know, big, big corp to send you all their leads, like what's in it for them. And that's, that's kind of how I always felt really early on. Um, and, and, you know, when, when we were still really tiny, but slightly bigger than someone with zero customers, we'd, we'd get outreach from people with zero customers saying like, let's be partners. And, I would, I would look at that and I would say, okay, well, we have like 
20 customers and you have zero. So it's slightly better for you, but how does, how is this a good relationship for us? Um, and so partners were, were just like a tricky thing for me to, for me to figure out for, for our business and di- businesses are different. And I think like marketplaces and, and getting a well-placed app in a, um, in an app marketplace for, for some product like, uh, Shopify, for example, could be really good for, um, for a business to, to get up and running for us partners made more sense recently, uh, more so than early on. And we have, we have a dedicated person on our team responsible for partner relationships. And that's been one, a, a pretty amazing channel for us recently. We're, um, we're part of the segment startup program. Um, if people are going through accelerators, we, we have, uh, we have some offers that are, that are part of the, are part of those accelerator programs. Um, we don't have like a, are there, are there good bootstrapper organizations that we could partner with too? I don't know that we have any, uh, uh, we don't have any like bootstrapper partnerships. Sure. <laughs> yeah. But that, I mean, it's been, it's been great um, as a, both as a source of new, new potential customers for us. Um, and, and I think it's, it's just, it feels good to me that there's this whole, there's, there's this new crop of companies that are coming up and we can, um, we can give them an amazing tool. That's gonna, that's gonna be with them as they grow and they can get it on day one rather than having to wait until they can afford to, you know, to spend a lot each month on, on a product. So, uh, it's been cool. That's kind of our, that's one of our bets on the future is, uh, as our partners program. Yeah, no, that that's interesting. I'm I'm curious. Like, so the the partners program, uh, you 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 put a focus on that recently. Yeah, probably about a year ago we started, and uh, more recently, I think it's it's probably like twenty, it's something like twenty to thirty percent of our our leads now. So it's it's a meaningful okay. so, yeah, meaningful number of new new leads and customers. Yeah, I'm wondering if if there's any connection between being more confident in in like the product and like the infrastructure like you said you know up until two three years ago like you felt you're struggling with the pace of development so i'm wondering if once you really um you know figured that out were you more comfortable going the partner route yeah i I think that's that's true too for for a long time uh we would hear from from people who were like who thought our product was awesome and I would hear that and yeah, it would last for like 20 minutes, but then I would go back to feeling embarrassed and being like, our product is so bad. There's so many rough edges. Like, I'm just not proud of this. Like we've got so much work to do and we're getting to the point where I'm proud of what we've built. And I think that it is a really good product and I do want to stand behind it and tell more people about it. Um, But we were, uh, we were really fortunate that a lot of people found us, but we didn't want to be loud because I, I think that there's nothing worse than being loud about something that is not good enough. And that like, you see these, you see these products out there uh, that make a lot of noise, but then when you really talk to people who have used them, they're like, yeah, this is a terrible product, but from their marketing and from the way that they talk outwardly about themselves, um, 
you would think that it's the best thing in the world. And that's, that's just not my personality. Uh, I want to have the best thing in the world before I tell people it's the best thing in the world. Yeah, no, I, I could totally relate to that. I totally get it. Um, so, so that, so that's cool. So you said about 20, 30% of leads come from the partners program. You have, uh, is it one dedicated resource that, that sort of deals with the partner side of thing? Okay. Yeah. One Uh, person building that out. Okay. Um, so where does that other like 70% of, of traffic come from? Any, would you attribute it to any other particular growth channel? Um, so we're experimenting a little bit with, with outbound. Uh, and I think the, I, I'm actually, I don't, I don't have a good idea of the percentages, but certainly we've seen the, um, the review platforms like G2 crowd have been, um, you know, they, they've been growing in importance in how, how businesses learn about B2B SaaS products. So, um, you know, I th- there's some, some portion of our traffic's coming from G2 crowd. There's just, I mean, th- the history of the company, there's just been a lot of inbound traffic that we, we don't really have an answer for why people, why people arrive at our website and why people decide to create, create trials. Um, we've fortunately had really strong word of mouth from happy customers when, when people move jobs, they, uh, they, if they had a good experience with customer IO, they sometimes recommend customer IO in their, in their new workplace. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, it's, it's a whole mix of stuff, but I think our, our strength has been in um, inbound through legacy content marketing that we've done and then, and word of mouth. Um, and, and we, we of course want to augment that with these other channels that we're exploring, but I'd say that's, that's been the, the foundation of the the growth of the business. You know what? I would also throw in like yourself, like your, your, the personal brand and reputation that you've personally built and like, you're, you know, you're, you're definitely well known like in the SaaS community. And so I think that has something to do with it too. Would you agree? Um, yeah. I mean, so, uh, one, thank you, Costa. Uh, (laughs) the, when, when we've hired people recently, They've said that one of the reasons they joined the company was like some, you know, they read some of the things that I'd, I'd written. And I think like a few years ago, I wanted, I was like desperate to remove myself from like untangle myself from the brand of the company. I, I kind of, I, I don't know why I came to this conclusion, but I, I no longer wanted to be the face of the company. I saw it as a big risk that, um, if, if my personal brand either overtook the company brand or was like too big of a deal as part of the company brand, then, it, then if I left, that would hurt the company. And, you know, the thing that I want more than anything is to be totally irrelevant to the success of the company. And, and so that's kind of why, that's one of the reasons why I really backed off on being the public face of, of customer. I own. I stopped doing podcast interviews. Um, I stopped, uh, speaking at, at conferences. And I think I, the, through a lot of encouragement from, from the leadership team that we have and from hearing from people who have joined the company and even people who are our customers, the, how important it was in their decision to either like feel good about 
working at Customer.io or feel good about using Customer.io as a product that, um, you know, something I had written or some interaction that they had had with me influenced that. It made me realize that um, I'm probably hurting the company if I don't lean into that a little bit more. So. That's interesting. Yeah. But you know what? That makes complete sense. Like I, I can understand your logic of wanting to step away uh, from, from being like the face of the company. So that, that, that makes sense. Um, I was going to ask about outbound as well. So that's something you guys are just experimenting with now, or have you done outbound in the past? We, we haven't done it in the past. I think that there's, um, I imagine you receive outbound. Uh, do, do you guys do outbound? To be honest, our company was built on outbound. Okay. I, I, per, I personally like closed the first probably 500 paying clients through. Awesome. Yeah. So, you know, like I think outbound is, uh, if you're, if you're on the receiving end of outbound, there's a lot of companies that don't, don't do a good job. And it was really important to me that, um, the way we did outbound reflected uh, our values. And so it, so it took us a while before even being willing to try it. And so we're, we're trying it and we're, um, we're ramping up. Uh, we're ramping up slowly. We have two people on the team who are BDRs and then um, someone leading that team. And we're, we're figuring out how to do outbound in a way that is consistent with, with kind of our, our whole approach and ethos. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, we're, we're learning a ton right now, but we're still in the sort of experimentation stage and, and not really at the point where we're going to uh, wake up tomorrow and hire 40 more people to, to go outbound. I don't know if we'll, we'll ever build a huge outbound program. Um, but I think it, it it's, it became really important for the business to have multiple sources of new customers. Um, we realized that we are um, functional, like the, the product it really works well for larger, larger businesses as well, but we were not behaving in a way in the same way that other companies competing for that business were behaving, including having an, uh, an outbound program. And so we, we felt like that put us at a disadvantage. If, if you look too different from the other things that people are considering buying, it's, it seems too risky. Um, and so, you know, building, building an outbound program is part of, part of building that, that uh, B2B sales and marketing machine that I think is important for us to, to compete going forward. Yeah, no, it makes sense for sure. Um, do you think uh, just with the limited time you, you've exper- been experimenting with outbound, do you think it's something that you can see yourself doing for, for the next little while? Do you think it's uh, going to be fruitful? Um, it's, it's been fruitful. I think I, off, I, I don't have the, the numbers right in front of me, but I think it's, we're getting an ROI. Uh, and I hope, I hope so. I hope we continue to do it because I think that the biggest, the biggest thing that outbound gives you is it, it helps new companies who wouldn't otherwise find you get exposure. And like mm-hmm. that to me is like, that's like the biggest door opener that, that outbound can provide. It lets you decide um, who would be a really good fit for, for your company and product and, and not leave it to chance that they're going to read some article or um, get referred or, or 
you know, however, however they find about find out about you organically. That's true. You know, I look at outbound from a, like sort of a different lens, like, you know, we're, we do outbound a lot. That's how our, our business was built. Uh, but at the same time, we're sort of in a different space. Like we're more, our customer are real estate agents. So it's more of like a mm-hmm. B to C slash B, like, uh, although it's an individual, there's still like a small business. Um, but, but I think in general with outbound and like cold calling and just, I think it gets a very bad reputation now and just looked upon as like an inefficient form of marketing, uh, but, but I think the reason that is, is because, you know, people are just, are not executing properly. Like, you know, I, I see yeah. companies all the time just slapping together some, you know, lack of a better term, like bullshit email sequences that look so spammy sure. and, and, you know, and they, it doesn't work because of that. And they come to the conclusion that outbound sales doesn't work. But I think nine out of 10 times, it's probably not that outbound doesn't work. It's the, the execution needs yeah. some work. So that's interesting. Yeah, I, th- I think one one of my requirements for for our outbound program was that um, every every interaction that we have with a prospective customer um, is a positive experience for that person, and so that's that's kind of the bar. That's that's where we want the bar to be set, and that and that means that you can't you can't be lazy about the way that you send messages. Oh, for sure. Um, um, Oh, cool. sorry. Did you? Yeah. Did you want to add something to that, or? No. Uh, but I, I realized I'm I'm running short on time. My oh. <laughs> uh, my son and my my daughter just arrived at the office, and I lost track of time. Oh shoot! Okay. They're, they're coming uh, to visit. Do you have time for the the last top three yes. questions? Yeah, quick, let's do quick it. Rapid fire. All right. Um, wrap up each conversation with, with the the top three. Uh, number one, your favorite uh, business book. Oh, favorite business book. So, so many. Um, I think like, I'm going to throw one out that, that I don't know that a ton of people read, but I, I really enjoy, I really enjoyed the five dysfunctions of a team. And I think about that book and I think about sort of people dynamics a lot. Um, cause I think people dynamics are so critical in the success of a company. Um, so if you, if you haven't read that one, read it. Yeah, I'll check that out. I don't think I've heard of that one. Um, number two, your favorite vacation spot. Favorite vacation. So uh, since moving to the West Coast, I think it's it's probably Hawaii because uh, nice. it's such a short short hop from the West Coast, nice, and nice. it m- makes you really feel like you're somewhere else. But I I think like beyond that, uh, if I'm if I'm willing to be on a plane for a really long time. Really, any anywhere in Southeast Asia. I grew up in Southeast Asia, and I think I, yeah, I love the beaches in Southeast Asia. Love it. That's awesome. And uh, lastly, if you can go back, what's the one thing you wish you knew when you were just starting out in business? Hmm. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know. Like, I, I think that we wouldn't have done this the way we did it if we knew more than we did. And I think that was one of our strengths. Like when, when we started, our experience was SendGrid and MailChimp. I didn't know there was a thing called exact target, which is now Salesforce marketing cloud. Like I didn't know about all of these enterprisey solutions. And I think if we had really understood our market, well, we would have perceived that there wasn't an opportunity for us. Um, so that's something that I'm glad we didn't know. I'm, I think that 
I wish I had understood more about um, uh, investment dynamics since since we have taken investment. You know, one one of the huge frustrations early on that we had is I think like six to eight months in, we tried to go out for a series A and it wasted like a ton of energy and time. And we got really, really discouraged by not being able to, um, I guess, pretend the company was going to be this thing that it wasn't. And so I had to like lie to myself in order to make the company interesting as a series a and i i just didn't i didn't feel comfortable doing it. i didn't believe in in the pitch we were making and i i thought that the business didn't have a hope <laughs> after that process um and so we were like super discouraged but um yeah now now we're like pro- want to prove everyone wrong so that we can have a really really big company yeah you know at the end of the day you can't replace uh, the experiences even though you you Maybe it would have done things a little bit different, but it's the experiences that got you where totally. you are, you can say. So, uh, but Colin, thank you so much, man. Really, really appreciate this. Uh, so sorry for losing track of time, but uh, <laughs> no worries, you know, Costa. W- wishing you continued success, success, continued growth, and um, really nice chatting with you. I hope we can do this again sometime. Yeah, you too, Costa. Take care. All right, take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, I would love to hear it. Be sure to check out founderviews.com for my latest posts and episodes on my journey with everything SaaS, business, and startups. Talk to you later. Peace.